Greetings. Welcome back to another episode of Hints and Guesses. I am very much enjoying it, so thank you for listening. It's still a weird format. I'm so used to kind of public speaking, giving teachings and sermons. It's just strange to put on headphones and speak into a mic. And uh, one of the things that's helping me along the way are your comments, questions, observations. It's inspiring me. And because of that, I have all kinds of ideas and possible things worth exploring. And today is no exception. I've been thinking about the word soul. I've been actually talking a lot about the word soul. It's probably a word I have always avoided. In fact, my kind of love-hate relationship with a word like soul really, I don't know, crystallized for me a few years ago. I was leading a retreat. I used to be a high school teacher, and I was leading this retreat and for seniors. And I had recruited a bunch of college kids, st- students, whatever, to be um, uh, like kind of camp counselors, chaperones, that sort of thing, and help me make this uh, weekend successful. And I had rented a couple of buses, and we were traveling from the high school up north, northern Michigan, to this uh camp to where we were having the retreat and I was sitting next to one of the high or excuse me one of the college students and he asked me a question and first he said this is a question I ask everyone I meet and he said what is soul to you and I have to be honest that like inside I tried to keep a straight face but inside I was annoyed I was annoyed by the question I mean I Maybe I was annoyed because I didn't know really know where he was coming from. It just kind of came out of the blue. One minute we're talking about, you know, sports and music and whatever, and all of a sudden he has to drop in with a, you know, a, a heavy-handed question like soul. So I was slightly annoyed by that. And more than that, some little churning was happening in my gut because... I didn't know. I didn't know. I, I, I had no idea what soul was. I had no idea if that word was even useful or helpful or important. But the question, I guess in a way, wouldn't go away. I think I gave him some sort of bullshit answer. I don't know. Something that popped into my head. And I don't know. It was like he had... Um, ventured into some territory in my own thinking, my own consciousness, probably my own unconscious territory, by simply asking such a straightforward question. And I did not know the answer. Part of me really did think there's that there was something important here, but I didn't know what. And I have no idea what this person's motivation was. In fact, he didn't give me any hints or clues. And I think I even asked him, what do other people say? And I don't even remember him giving me a clear answer. But it's funny to me because that that was just a passing, probably 45-second encounter that 
has it's come back up for me several times over the last few years, particularly when I started to get interested in the question myself. I was like, God, that's right. That, that student, I have no idea who he was. That student, that college kid asked me this question a few years ago, and I really had no response. Now, I want to do, I think, if I do this well or well enough, I want to do I want to have a conversation about soul and I want it to maybe span over three podcasts. That's kind of the way I envision it just now as I'm thinking about it. And I don't intend to be definitive. I don't intend to be certain. I just intend to have a conversation. And part of it comes from a belief that I have that a conversation about soul matters. Something about it matters. And I might even go so far as to say a conversation about soul is probably the most important conversation we can be having right now in our crazy world, in our soulless world, as people sometimes sort of glibly refer to it. So it matters, in other words. It matters to me and and not, and not just like, uh, it's not just, not just important because it matters to me personally, but a question like soul, what is the human soul? Do human beings have a soul? What is meant by soul? Is a perennial question. It's a perennial question. It's a, it's a question that comes up in every religious and philosophical tradition that we know of, even if it doesn't really um, maintain uh, the the exact word soul it seems to be hovering around in the background so I want to kind of work toward a definition and I think my evolving growing changing fluid definition of soul I'll try to give you but not after a couple of podcasts so maybe podcast number three will get around to or to an attempt at bringing at least a little clarity to what is meant by soul. And you may disagree, and that's fine. The other thing that I think is interesting is that I've been teaching at this place called C3 here in West Michigan. It's an inclusive spiritual community in Grand Haven. You can check it out if you're ever in West Michigan. It's uh, definitely worth the drive. Very interesting, dynamic, multi-generational spiritual community. People have, I don't know, from all kinds of backgrounds, Christians, former Christians, uh, some Jewish people, Buddhists, agnostics, atheists. Uh, many of them are retired, so it's a very interesting um, age uh, ranges. Anyway, one of the things we do at C3 is before the actual service, There's uh, we spend an hour discussing a question, or 45 minutes discussing a question that's related to whatever the... Uh, topic is that we're talking about. And so last week, I, I asked the question, what do you think of the word soul? And and I gave a few other leading questions. And really kind of an, a dynamic and cool conversation ensued. One of the things I noticed almost right away is that people could not avoid talking about soul as it relates to afterlife. That's immediately the direction many people win, not everybody. Um, and for those in the room who really didn't believe in a kind of afterlife, 
um, they were sort of dismissive then of the word soul. Well, if soul is just the so-called immortal part of um, a part of us, I'm, I, I'm not really interested in soul. And that's not really what I mean by soul. And in fact, in podcast number two dedicated to soul, I'll try to be clear about what I don't mean by it, but we'll wait off or we'll wait on some of that. But at least by way of introduction, I'm not necessarily meaning this kind of immortal thing, this nebulous immortal thing that's going to, you know, go to heaven or go to the afterlife or purgatory or nirvana or somehow, um, you know, uh, float up into the sky after we die. I don't, I don't really mean that, although I will maintain this as a question. Is there something of soul that's eternal? And by eternal, I mean both precedes our physical form and um, lasts beyond our present arrangement of particles and molecules and atoms and so forth. It's just a question, and it's a worthwhile question. So even the fact that right away this discussion kind of went into the afterlife, um, I don't want to dismiss. I think it's important. What do we mean by soul? It tells you something, gives it, gives at least me a, a clue that we're talking about something archetypal, something very ancient, a pattern that, that, that keeps coming up in various traditions and stories and myths. What does it mean to be a human being? What is at the seat of our existence? Is the seat of our existence um, uh, eternal, immortal? Um, is it transitory? What what constitutes our humanness and our unique individual humanness? Not to mention, sort of a collective question: What does it mean to be human more broadly? So, with that said, I think it's important to mention that soul or the question of soul seems to be more poignant at certain seasons in life. And, you know, I might be kind of uh, universalizing my own experience. One of my professors in uh, graduate school at Hebrew University would say, we tend to universalize what life has done to us. So I'm certainly guilty of that, and I might be universalizing something. But I think the interest around the word soul becomes more activated at certain periods in life. And they're, they're worth mentioning now. And, I mean, maybe you're not even at one of these sort of critical junctions, and, and then you might be thinking to yourself, I don't really care about soul, and, and that would be uh, proving my point, so to speak. So let me just mention them, and I'll just mention as kind of a few that I'm that I can think of right now. I think a word like soul becomes more interesting and more attractive in a midlife crisis, and I don't even know what I mean by midlife. I'm 40 now, supposedly that's midlife, and I've I've certainly been in a kind of midlife crisis for at least uh, five years or so. And right now on my kitchen table, there is a kind of crisis in unfolding here. I'm watching my 
my mom's kitten and I also have a cat and they're sort of just meeting one another in a terrified state of panic and hissing. So if you hear some hissing, it's just the cats. Anyway, um, back to midlife crisis. Midlife crisis, what is that? What is a midlife crisis? I mean, in a very straightforward sense, it's like, what is the, what is my life now? What the hell have I been doing all these years? I've been working toward what? And where do I go from here? Have I been going in the wrong direction? Am I, you know, I don't even know what direction I'm going anymore. In my, in my uh, book, Bitten by a Camel, I have a little chapter that alludes to this where I'm describing this uh, quotation from Thomas Merton where he says, you can spend your whole life climbing the ladder of success only to realize it's leaning against the wrong wall. That, my friends, is a midlife crisis. You're like, oh, I, I, I made it, but I'm not sure to what I've, you know, I, I don't know really what making it means anymore. It's my ladder's on the wrong wall. I've got the corner office and I don't know what I'm doing in this building, so forth and so on. And, and this, uh, you know, can, I think probably happens to everybody. Okay, I got married. I have kids. Uh, and what now? Um, and I think our culture actually, I think because of consumerism, materialism, and identity being wrapped up with possessions and prestige, and Facebook is the, the, the conduit for communicating much of this stuff, the midlife crisis, I don't think anybody is getting out of it at this point. There, there are, many people are just in a low-level depression about what the hell am I doing, and yet we're distracting ourselves to death by clicking on and um, other people's lives and watching television about other people's lives, like reality shows and whatnot. I don't know, hoping that the next one maybe will either keep us numb or, or maybe help us wake up, or I don't even know what we're looking for. The midlife crisis now in America is pervasive and, um, and I think really important. If someone comes to me and says, I don't know what I'm doing anymore, my life feels like a sham, I think, all right, now we've just stumbled onto the territory worth exploring and I think it has something to do with soul so midlife crisis I think is essential I think also trauma tragedy are major catalysts and I am by no means praising these or you know in some creepy theological um, rubric that God is causing trauma or tragedy I don't have that worldview at all but stuff happens. Terrible things happen to people, and sometimes terrible things happen in a terribly unfair way. And the very shock and horror of our own trauma and our own tragedies, looking into the face of a tragedy, something inexplicable, I think from the seat of our deepest resources wells up a question that's related to soul. And the question is something like, who am I? The question is something like, what is, what is this life? 
And what am I doing with my life? And who's in control of this thing called life? Soul-oriented questions. And I think uh, along with trauma, tragedy, I'd just include some kind of massive failure. I think, yeah. Um, yeah. In fact, I was talking with someone the other day, a really, really, really successful person um, who had kind of made it to the top of her particular field and had a following and all that kind of stuff. And um, like so many people who climb that particular ladder, um, get that office, so to speak, make that name, you know, I suddenly have a name for myself in the broader world. Suddenly it all collapses for a complex set of reasons that no one could have predicted that is a combination of unforeseen and uncontrollable forces that you can do nothing about on the one hand and also a series of choices that one has to take responsibility for this weird mixture of it's it's I didn't will this and also part of my will was involved in this that kind of massive failure that's the way failure can feel and then you're ready for soul-oriented questions which feels like a defeat and maybe is crystallized in a question like, I don't know who I am anymore. I don't know who I am anymore. Now we're talking. Now we're talking soul-oriented questions. So, um, I don't know. Let me mention just two other things. I think addiction, uh, I don't personally, that's not my, well, I should say, I was going to say, that's not my problem, which, uh, would be like shadow work 101 if I, by the way I will do something on the shadow I'd still I'm still turning it over but um, one way to get to just I mean have a sense that you might be dealing with some shadow material is if you say something like well the one thing I know about myself is that I don't have a problem with and I was about to say addiction that probably means I really do and it's it's just a shadow because the shadow is what we don't know about ourselves that's the simple definition. The shadow is what we don't know about ourselves. If we knew it, it wouldn't be in the shadow. Anyway, um, so I think like uh, addiction, um, <laughs> cats are hissing again. I love it. <laughs> it's a sign. Um, of what? I have no idea. Um, so I think uh, the reason why I mention addiction is because um, I've been listening to Russell Brand's uh, um, audiobook on addiction, which is absolutely fantastic. It's certainly one of the best books of the year. <laughs> it could be one of the most important books of uh, this decade. Um, and I, it, it sounds like I'm exaggerating. That's just the way I feel about it right now. It's uh, really profound. He takes the 12 steps and um, and it's very personal. And he talks about his own path to addiction. But he mentioned something in there that I'm certainly not going to to, to do it justice, but he talks about um, almost a sense, even in the height of addiction, a sense of curiosity that, that who am I beneath the demon of, of addiction, of these demonic, he doesn't use that word, but I will, these demonic forces that seem almost outside of myself, that, that I feel like I, have, I am powerless to do anything about. Is there anything beneath that? Or is what beneath that 
just nothing but a, a, a void of meaningless um, emptiness and total annihilation. Who am I beneath uh, this thing that has such a grip on my life? I think that's a soul-oriented question. And I think of one more, and I would call it uh, numinous encounters, um, mystical um, and perhaps transcendent uh, spiritual encounters. But what I mean numinous in, in just the in its most mysterious sense, where an encounter, a conversation, a moment, a feeling, a dream, a vision, um, something inexplicable that you have this powerful feeling that I did not make this up. I did not create this, and I did not make this up, and I'm not sure what this encounter or experience really is, that's um, a window into the soul. Or it, it's a little breadcrumb on the trail back to the question of soul. Who am I beneath all this? Which is probably a simple way of summarizing um, what I've been hovering around. Who am I beneath my ego persona? Or who am I beneath who I think I am? Is there anything beneath who I think I am? And yes, that has something to do with the unconscious. So, so all of a sudden you realize, oh, oh, who I thought I, who I thought I was is the tip of an iceberg. And what's underneath the surface of the water is this massive thing called the unconscious that I know almost nothing about. Um, and somewhere resting down beneath the water level is the question of soul, or is one soul, um, which is mostly hidden, is the way it feels much of the time. Not that it, not that it, it is to remain forever hidden, but I'll come to that later. So who am I beneath my ego persona? And I'll have, I think, more to say on that in the second in round two of, of uh, soul. So I'll, I feel like I should hold off on that. We'll, we'll just hold it, hold that as good enough so far. By the way, soul um, comes from the word psyche. And psyche is related to breath, actually. And I think, um, well, the, the word is Greek. Um, and I, th I think, at least my understanding is, the way the Greeks used psyche is they meant the seat of one's um, being and everything about one's being, the intellect, the emotions, um, everything that made up a person um, in, in their most elemental sense was part of the psyche. But I, I really love that it's connected to breath, the breath of a human being, as if, um, as if the, the very thing that keeps us alive, our own breathing, the in-breath and the out-breath, is happening somewhere down in the very seat of our being, and it too is breathing in and out, and 
if the psyche or the soul ceased to do its breathing, then we would cease to be. We simply would not be. And I love that. I mean, imagine a, an infant coming out of the womb and that first gasp of breath where there's a transition between uh, the a life bound up in the life of a mother to the beginning of an independent, autonomous creature uh, that is about to go through life full of troubles and joys, that gasping breath, something like that rests on, I want to say the non-physical, but that doesn't quite feel right, but um, rests beneath the surface, somewhere down in our the depths of our being, our soul took its first gasp of breath and we came to be. It's also reminding me just now of um, of the image in Genesis where God breathes into human beings and without the breath of God, without the breath of the mystery, they would cease to exist. And so their breathing is somehow connected to the divine breath. And now we're already hovering around what is the relationship between our wild autonomous individuality, which I think of as more of a soul, and then our unitive, um, non-dual, transcendent connection with the divine. So the upper world, the spirit. And um, yeah, I've got more to say on that, but I'll wait. Seems to be the theme right now. I have more to say on that, but not right now. So where does that leave us? It leaves us um, with a question about what is the rock bottom truth of my own life? What is the rock bottom truth of my own life? And I want to just briefly say a few things about, about the life of Jesus because I think, personally, he goes on a kind of soul quest. He I'm reading between the lines, but he reaches a certain point in life where I think he too wonders, who am I? Who am I? Who am I really? What am I here to do? What, what am I here to be? Who am I really? Uh, and who is God? And, and starts to get curious enough about such a question, about these questions, that he begins the archetypal uh, pattern of descent because that is the nature of soul journey soul quest it feels like a descent not like an ascent not like climbing higher and higher and higher or even climbing higher spirituality in a spiritual sense where you're like even more transcendence even more meditation even more unitive consciousness but sort of forgetting all that and sinking down sinking down beneath the surface down under the water uh, into the unconscious, into the seat of one's own wild individuality and uniqueness, I think Jesus goes on such a journey. I assume he goes on such a journey because that's the journey of, that's the great journey of soul discovery. And we would clearly say, just in a, even if you're not like a Christian or you're not sure what you think about Jesus or whatever, I think you can agree he's a person that lives from soul. I mean, from, uh, and how do we know that? Because he has a kind of uh, 
um, what breaks out around around him is a kind of wildfire of of healing and of and people are captivated and some of them are really pissed at Jesus which both of those uh, realities people are being healed and people are hating him that seems to happen to people around people um, whose souls are coming to life and they seem to know who they are and they may have questions along the way and even Jesus right up to the end seems to wonder about the nature of his own mission um, but they seem to know enough of who they are and they're putting that out there in the world and the major story of Jesus's life that hints at this kind of soul descent is the 40 days and 40 nights that he spends in the wilderness. So the way the story goes is that somewhere around the age of 30, which probably in the ancient world is midlife crisis, Jesus begins to leave home. And I've talked a lot about leaving home. I've I worked it into my book. I work it into my <laughs> teachings. Um, I've been influenced by Joseph Campbell, who talks about leaving home and the call to leave and the essential. Um, it's a, the call to leave home is an essential ingredient in growing up and in beginning a, one's soul discovery. But he clearly leaves mom and dad, and. Eventually, that comes to a pinnacle where he never goes back to Nazareth again. Even his, even his own family thinks he's crazy. Uh, but before um, he really begins what Christians would call the ministry years, where he makes disciples and goes around healing and teaching and so forth, he spends 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, which you're, you know already you are dwelling in the more mythic, imaginative, and archetypal patterns of truth that are embedded in the Hebrew narrative, in the Bible itself, where uh, Moses spends 40 days and 40 nights on the mountain of Sinai. Elijah walks uh, 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Horeb, which is another name for um, Mount Sinai. Um, you have the flood story, which is Moses, who this wild dreamer, who has a vision for a new world and a world that's not filled with violence and in in spite of everyone's like uh you know mockery he builds a boat anyway and it rains for 40 days and 40 nights and you have the israelites who leave egypt the land of slavery the land of darkness where they simply don't know who they are outside of the identity of being owned as a human being. And they're launched out on this wild adventure where they can't even prepare um, or survive without manna from heaven and water coming out from a rock. They're totally dependent on wild nature and on the wind of God, as they imagined. Um, they spend 40 years out in the wilderness. And Jesus seems to be recapitulating that story, enacting it, um, embodying it by spending his own 40 days and 40 nights out in the wilderness. And I think in no uncertain terms, he intends to find out who he is and who God is.
And of course, once you go on the wild adventure, once you leave home, once your life no longer makes sense, once you go through a midlife crisis, once you, um, once a few tragedies and traumas and failures um, and addictions uh, work on you and you get launched out into uh, the desert, then who shows up? The demons show up. Satan shows up. <laughs> the tempter, the accuser, these, which is, by the way, what the word Satan means, the accuser, these accusing voices um, appear before you and press against you and taunt you because I think in part to discover one's soul and to, to, to sink into the depths of one's being and to know who you are and who you are to be in the world and, and what to bring forth in the world, then the, the programs that have been operating in our minds and hearts and cultures no longer have power over us. And that makes everybody around us afraid. And I think even parts of our egoic persona deathly afraid. And so there, there's a, a full-scale war psychically against soul discovery because we're really, really committed to who we think we are. And even if you're like super spiritual and you, you know, um, and you know, you're, you know, you got your Myers-Briggs and you, you know, you, whatever you, you've got your Enneagram number and you're like, I'm a four and, and you become very attached to who you think you are, even one's own spirituality and all the sophisticated kind of psycho, psycho spiritual kind of stuff that you've consumed is also going to wage an all scale, all hands on deck war against sinking into something sinking into something beneath all that stuff because you might have to give it up. And who wants to give up? I mean, not only like the, the demons that control us, like our addictions and our illusions and our patterns, but also all the, all like the good, pretty spiritual stuff that we've built up around us to kind of prove to ourselves that we matter and that we know who we are. What if all that has to go? Which, at least in my view, is part of the soul descent. It's all got to go. And that's like being in the wilderness, being tempted by the devil himself. And I think it's worth mentioning the nature of these three temptations because I think that the reason why perhaps they're included in the Gospels or three of the four Gospels is that they're personal for Jesus, but they're transpersonal. There's, they're, the way they're phrased, there seems to be some universal um, kind of temptations built into the structure. In other words, we pass through these as well. If we're going to go on the journey of who are we and who are you, God, we're going to meet the, the devil in the wilderness, and the devil is going to put before us at least, at the very least, uh, three things, which is like a good classic myth, um, archetypal story. They, they come in threes. And, and here they are. So the first one is around bread. 
so um, Jesus is hungry, hasn't, hasn't eaten, and the tempter says, change these stones to bread. And if you've ever, ever been to the Judean wilderness in Israel, you'll know that, it, that there's almost some humor to this because every, in every direction, on every hillside and in every canyon or wadi are stones. So the tempter says, change these stones to bread. And I, I've really um, given this sort of image a lot of thought over the years because I often talk about this when I lead trips to Israel. I talk about this uh, temptation story because I find it such a powerful transition in Jesus's life. And it, it's occurred to me that bread really is a symbol for the work of our hands. That's the simple way that I would put it because, of course, bread doesn't grow on trees. You can't, uh, it doesn't just grow wild out there in the world. Something about it uh, is, is, is an essential part of our human story. It's what we make. Jesus, make something. Make something with your hands. You will know who you are if you make something. And in fact, that is largely the message we receive from culture. You will know who you are by what you do. It's the first freaking question we ask people when we meet them. What do you do? Because we want to, first of all, put people into a category. We want to, to you know, say, okay, oh, uh, yeah, you're a lawyer. Oh, you know, now, now I know where to put you in the grand scheme of things. Or, God forbid, you tell someone you're a pastor, you know, oh, that's just, talk about a, a burden. Now, for some people, they, you know, it's either they think too highly of you or too low if you're in that kind of kind of role. And yeah, so the work of our hands, what we produce, prove who you are by what you produce. And Jesus says, basically, I'm not going to play that game. Human beings do not live on bread alone which just is a leading question, then what do they live on? Who are they then if they're not just um, beings that produce something that then it is, uh, makes them worth something? Now, if you don't come across this temptation out in the wilderness, then you will die a person. You will lay down on your deathbed still thinking it's about what I did and what I made. What a travesty. And that is living disconnected from your soul, from something beneath the bread you have manufactured. So that's temptation one. Temptation two. Temptation two is about, I think, external identity, particularly as it relates to one's popularity or social position. So the tempter takes him up to a high place in the temple and says, jump off. And, and if the scriptures or the Psalms really are to be believed, then the angels will not let you hit the ground, says the tempter. And again, Jesus does not play this game, but in the story, and he seems to go along with it at to a certain, he has to get all the way up on the high point all the way up on the top of the ladder, all the way up to the corner office, all the way up to the pinnacle of the temple. And the tempter says, go ahead, jump. Because if he jumps, then suddenly Jesus becomes the miracle, wonder-working, circus, you know, uh, sideshow of the dude who jumps off high buildings. Instant popularity, instant fame, 
do it again, Jesus, do it again. Prove who you are by performing some kind of external um, sort of magic show. And then in public, which is, I think, different than the first temptation, he's out in the wilderness, and the second temptation, he's in public. The temptation has to do with one's public role. Jesus says, no, I'm not going to play that game. So again, not just the work of your hands, what you produce, but who you are in other people's eyes, your popularity. So we would call this prestige, which is definitely one of the many idols, one of the, the probably most essential idols that our culture is bowing down before, um, which is why you know social media is such a temptation for people because it's putting oneself out there in a certain way. I will know myself by what other people think of me. And if they think that I'm some sort of wonder-working, miracle, magician, leap off tall buildings, um, famous, then I will mean something. I'll know who I am. Jesus says, I'm not going to play that game. And the third temptation is really quite simple. The tempter takes him to a mountain. And I think we can imagine something like Mount Olympus or some mythic place where, according to the story, Jesus can see all the kingdoms of the world. And kingdoms, I think, really um, means empires here. The empires, the power systems, the structures. And the tempter says, hey, if you bow down before me, I'll give you all this. If you bow down before the God of power, I will give you power. And Jesus says, of course, I'm not going to play that game. That's my translation. And what's so powerful, by the way, about this is that, and so sad, is that Christendom, the politicized form of Christianity that took over, really starting 200, but more 300, 400 years after Jesus, went the way of power. It probably had some good things mixed in there, like all um, movements and institutions and systems. It's not wholly good or wholly bad, but it definitely went the way of power, that we will know who we are. We will even know who God is, and we will know that God is on our side when we have power. And that's also been part of the American myth, that God must be on our side because we have so much power. And if we lose our power, we won't know who we are anymore. And that's exactly what the tempter is putting before Jesus. That you will know who you are. You will know your worth, your value, your, quote, soul here. And you will know who God is if you go the way of power. Jesus says, no, I'm not going to do that. And he really sets the stage for the rest of his life. You know where the story is going to end. The way is going to be the way of powerlessness. The way is going to be the way down, not the way up. And here in the wilderness with no food, having looked his own demons in the face, Jesus discovers some seed of who he is. 
some uh, essence. He begins to call himself the son of man, the son of humanity. He's, he's found enough soul where he can move out into the world, not that he'll never be tempted again, but he has at least looked in the face his own demons. And it's not about what he can make with his hands. It's not about popularity or fame, and it's not about power. That those are false gods. And that is why, in a sense, Jesus becomes such a provocative, powerful, captivating figure that changed the the course of human history. I call that descending into the darkness, descending into the question of soul. Finding a ground somewhere down there that isn't rooted in these external forms or in fancy uh, psychological language in one's ego or ego persona. And that's the place uh, from which one begins to live anew, which feels like being born again. You must be born again. You must start over. Or to use Paul's language, you must die and be reborn. So, yeah, man. It's funny because I'm not a fundamentalist anymore. I'm not a literalist anymore. And those, the, the shedding of those ways of perceiving the Bible in particular, the shedding of those has not led to the Bible becoming, you know, boring and uninteresting. It's actually opened the door to, I think, its real power. So let me end with the first line of uh, the Divine Comedy. The first line in the Divine Comedy. And you, I think this line will give you a sense of the sort of thing I'm trying to talk about here. In the middle in the middle of the journey of our life. Yeah, in the middle of the journey of our life, says Dante. I came to myself in a dark wood where the direct way was lost. This is what I mean by a midlife crisis. You, you, you get to the middle of your life and the direct way, in other words, the way you thought it was going to do, going to be the way the direct way the path stay on the straight and narrow it's lost the direct way is lost it is a hard thing to speak of yeah it's a hard thing to speak of in fact our culture wants to do everything it can especially in terms of social media and uh, entertainment and so forth not to speak of it not to even acknowledge that it's there It is a hard thing to speak of how wild, harsh, and impenetrable that wood was. So when you enter the wilderness, when you enter the woods, when you sink beneath the surface, I'm not going to lie to you, this is hard freaking work, and you don't know where you're going much of the time. So let me read that sentence again. It is a hard thing to speak of how wild, harsh, and impenetrable that wood was. So that thinking of it recreates the fear. And the writer's looking back and saying, God, I was afraid. Even just thinking of that time period in my life, even thinking back to when I spent 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, recreates the fear itself. 
it is scarcely less bitter than death. And in fact, I would add, it feels like death. It feels like death. Something has to die. Something has to die for it to be reborn. It scarcely feels less bitter than death. But in order to tell you of the good, wait a minute. But in order to tell you of the good, so there's something good. And I think um, good is, is a mild way of putting it. Something essential and beautiful and whole and deep and meaningful. In order to tell of the good I found there, I must tell of the other things that I saw there. The good and the bad, the golden flecks at the bottom of the well, and the scary dark water itself, the demons, and the very breath of God all belong 